Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and joining me is Clive Ashenden. And we're a couple of filmmakers uh, talking about uh, other f- filmmakers' work. And uh, yes, Keith's not with us tonight because um, he's um, he didn't feel he was that knowledgeable about our uh, director we're going to talk about. So he sort of stepped aside so Clive could uh, jump into the hot seat and to talk about our director, who is... Jim Jarmusch, the uh, patron saint of indie filmmaking. Yes, indeed. Um, Somebody who um, I've only sort of... I've seen his work over the years, but not really kind of... You know, when you're not really understand how somebody's body of work is really you know it's i didn't realize how indie he was i i just i i remember seeing um ghost dog uh back in the late 90s i got it on dvd and at the time i was really into tarantino and gangster films and, and stuff like that so when i saw this film called ghost dog way of the samurai i was like oh i've got to check this out and of course it was the most uh unusual gangster film i'd had ever seen (laughs) yes yeah i mean it's it's weird he sort of he's he's both fitted into that kind of second wave of indie um but he was always sort of to one side of it uh, at at the same time because of his his uh, idiosyncratic kind of sensibility and, and way of looking at things so you know in with something like ghost dog you've got this uh, this uh, incredible melding of uh, Kurosawa movies, uh, different samurai influences from uh, from Japanese films, uh, you know, together with hip hop culture. Yeah, and it it the kind of threw me. You know, it was I was like, wow, this is this is different. I mean, I, but it wasn't like my cup of tea at the time. I, I remember that. I remember at the time thinking, mm, it's a, I don't know, it's just. I would have preferred a little bit more action, <laughs> you know, but coming back and watching it again recently, because um, I've actually, I've, I've, I've sat and watched all uh, the Jim Jarmusch's films again. Um, and that was because uh, my girlfriend's a big fan and um, we went to see uh, Only Lovers Left Alive uh, last year when it came out. And so I really enjoyed that. And so I kind of, gone back and sort of watched all his films it's it's a really interesting arc he goes through i, I mean i'd say i only love is left alive is the only one of his fiction films that i haven't managed to catch yet but uh but i'm a big fan of his particularly his, his sort of early to middle period films i think that you know they're they're just just as a film uh, just as a filmmaker i find them very inspiring uh, in terms of the, the approach he takes the way he shoots uh i guess it's he really has a vision and and that's what kind of differentiates him from a lot of uh, other filmmakers i think also um he he lets the camera linger um i know in stranger than paradise um he he does everything in one shot so he lets the actors sort of move around in the space and then he'll you know the next scene will be another shot and he just does that throughout the whole film and I thought the first time I watched um, Permanent Vacation, he did a similar thing, but it, it wasn't so, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't think I was watching it properly the first time because I noticed there was a lot more cutting than I remember. 
but it's very sort of simplified. It's you might get three or four shots in a scene. It's not. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's not quite the same approach, and you can you can see a real kind of step up in mm. filmmaking. I think. Yeah. And I mean, and we say it's, you say it's all done in one shot, and obviously it is. But uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of variation within that. You've got uh, you've got sort of master shots which are which are static, and then you've also got kind of uh, you've got tracking shots following people uh, as they walk along, and at the same time you've got thing you know pan uh, pans that you know it, so it does it moves around. It, they just it, it just he lets everything play out in in one shot and there's a lot of that in terms of sort of trusting the actors now that doesn't always work and we'll we'll talk about one instance mm. where uh, the one instance in particular where it doesn't work i think uh, as as we're going on here but when you have when you have really charismatic leads when you have really interesting uh, uh, actors and well, sometimes non-actors acting for the first time but who just who have a who are kind of naturally photogenic and uh, just you know pop on screen, then that's then that's great. That's what you want. You 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 don't want the filmmaker getting in the way. And he certainly doesn't. I mean, just putting my director's hat on for a second. The the one thing uh, I discovered from doing a, a story in one shot was that um, you didn't have to then worry about tr- coverage. So that you could go into a scene and you could explore it a lot more than if you're trying to sort of, you know, keep a, a performance the same so that from one ca- camera angle to another that you can cut between it. So um, I, I just remember how freeing that was. You could just you could go in there and you could really explore the scene and try different things because at the end of the day, you're only going to use one of those takes. So you can try different things that normally you wouldn't have um, the time or the inclination to do because you're trying to think, well, I, I want the what we do in the master to be the same as in the close-up or the medium shot or, you know, and so it, it's, it's very, it's very freeing for a performance. You're not having to worry so much about, you know, it performance for camera so much. I think it's, it can be very helpful for the actors. It, uh, in terms of their timing that uh, you know they're not worrying okay in this you know in this you know am i on am i in the shot here uh or am i just sort of giving a performance so the other person can react and more importantly perhaps you're not kind of grinding people into the ground by having them do the same thing over and over again from different angles uh so and until you know whatever original vivacity they had is sort of just gone you know so it's just okay we just need to get this shot now and it then then time starts to encroach i I guess uh, countering that is if you have a moment when you're playing it all out in one shot which is absolutely brilliant but then but then someone corpses or you lose it at the end (laughs) you can't use it you know, yeah. if you're not covering it in some way, but hey, yeah. but th- th- these are the sort. This is what you discover on set. This is part of the joy of filmmaking. So it really comes down to choice of actors, and the the one thing that uh, Jim ja- Jim Jarmusch does very well is um, he uses musicians as actors in his films, and I think one of the things that they bring along is that they're used to performing live, so they know, you know, that if they fuck up it's there so they're probably more you know 
I would say, um, you know, they're more aware of that aspect than, say, an, a sort of film actor who will say, well, if I fuck it up this time, I can always go again. Yeah, and I think also because he's, you know, he comes from a, a somewhat of a musical background himself. He's been in several bands. He's, uh, you know, been involved in in the in composing music for his films at different points. Or if not himself, he's really collaborating very closely with the people who who are doing the scores for his films, or or who are composing songs for his films. So because there's always that that connection with music with Jarmusch. I think uh, you know it's it just it almost it feels a natural thing that that you would have these uh, you know rock, rock and pop stars just uh, you know turning up in his films and it, it and they don't feel like they're sticking out like a sore thumb they feel no. naturally part of his world because it's almost part of the way he sort of see, tends to see things this kind of I you know rock and roll outsider I guess uh, point of view yeah yeah and. Uh... They've, they've always been great there's never I, I don't think there's been like one musician in his films that I thought was terrible I mean there might have been one or two actors in his films I thought <laughs> was terrible but uh, the musicians always seem to be really good yeah I, I would I would agree with that I think he, he, he cast he cast them well in terms of picking the right role for them I think which which helps and, and you know, I think you could you could absolutely say that he discovered tom waits as an actor because uh, you know after tom waits appears in down by law he then goes on and, and does loads of stuff you know bram stoker's dracula uh, you know a, a, any number of different projects and that all that, that all comes out oh that's right he was in shortcuts yeah and the um uh, dr Par- parnassus as well as the devil yeah uh, type typecasting, you might say. But, um, <laughs> he no, has the uh, voice for it. <laughs> he does. He's got a fantastic voice, um, <laughs> and, and and that's that's the thing. Often, often these performers, you know, uh, because well, I mean, the performers talking about tend to tend to be vocalists. Although uh, with John Lurie, he's a, he's a saxophonist. Yeah. But um, but you know, often you know they, they've trained their voice in some way or they've ruined it with 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 smoke and uh, and bourbon <laughs> yeah, uh, in yeah. such a way that it sounds brilliant so either way it all it's all uh, it's all good so yeah well i mean um i mean i sorry i don't know if um i'm trying to think well uh richard edison who was in um uh, stranger than paradise he was a drummer ah okay that yeah. that, that makes sense so, you know, I think he gave up drumming and uh, went on to be an actor because I, 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 the first time I remember seeing him was in Strange Days. He was the, uh, the guy peddling uh, the videos, wasn't he? You see him at the beginning and he's, uh, has, he's really kind of a strung out kind of character. Uh, when you see him in Stranger Than Paradise, he's slightly like that. I think it's, you know. He, he's just, he's one of these kind of guys who you see and you go, oh, it's that guy. You know, yeah, because it because he's become one of those character actors, yeah. but so much so that I think of him that way. I don't think of him as a musician turned actor. So that's interesting. That's right. I think he was a drummer from Sonic Youth. Ah, okay. Yes, uh, I mean that that US sort of uh, punk scene, indie scene. I guess it, that was something that Jarmusch was sort of 
tangentially part, uh, sort of plugged into, especially in his New York years. He, he was mm. he was absolutely sort of passionate about music, and I think uh, there was there was one time before before he goes to New York University and spends four years, you know, uh, on the film course. That there was one point I think where he just he, he basically just tries to be a professional musician and 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 you know just sort of falls into filmmaking in a way you know because he, he'd always taken photographs so this sort of yeah it's this sort of just always sort of seeing yourself as an artist and then kind of it just sort of coming out that way so uh, but i think there's a certain there's a certain amount to be said for people who are musicians who, who go into film and the way that they think about editing, the way they think about directing. I think Mike Figgis is another person I would sort of point out as someone who's, who, who started out in music and, 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 as all, and, and has talked quite eloquently about how he views uh, music, how he, how he views the sort of music in film and, and the sort of, and the rhythms of editing as, as being a sort of uh, like a natural kind of, uh, mesh really uh, the two things because it's it's all the same thing you know you, you're watching a scene and it, and it creates a rhythm in a head uh, in your head and music so I, I think there are other directors who who are kind of more visually orientated yeah. but but uh, but you know the you know him and and Jarmusch I, I'd you know you, you do get that 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 feeling that their films have a particular rhythm well I I do understand that because uh, a little known fact about me was I was a musician before I started making films. I used to be, I was a guitarist and then I was a bass player, but not in a professional manner. It was, it was always sort of more of, um, you know, I was in a band for a very short time with some friends and then, um, we sort of disbanded and I tried to be a session player, but I, bumped into some really seedy characters and after that i just didn't want to know because it was just just, you know it left a bad taste in my mouth but i mean i still i still play the guitar i mean just at home i just (laughs) but i mean you know mike tack you know he's a guitarist you know and he's played in bands and everything live and touring and all that stuff so you know it's it, it it I don't think. I mean, it it does sort of give you an idea of rhythm. If you if you've got a, you know, if you can play like guitar and you've got a good rhythm, then you can translate that to film to editing. Yeah, and uh, and obviously there are plenty of filmmakers who, uh, who who who've scored their own movies. You know, John Carpenter, for yeah. instance. You know, a very prominent example. And uh, but uh, I guess you know, bringing it back to Jarmusch. I think it's. I think that whole that whole musicality of his films, the fact that he casts a lot of musicians in prominent roles, but also just that that kind of uh, that that role of the kind of bohemian rock and roll outsider figure that he's at, that he he really kind of identifies with. It just runs through all his work. Yeah. Well, I mean, his uh, films, especially his early ones, are early cases of hipsters. Yeah, that's one of those things where where it doesn't really serve him because the hipster community, uh, I think, it make, makes 
almost makes his films, some of his films look a little bit arch and mm. studied, which yeah. they're not. Um, and, and you kind of have to get underneath that surface because you could, if you, if you look at a still for some of his early films, then you just, then you just go, Oh, look, there's a couple of hipsters. Yeah. And, and, and it's not his fault that, that you know, certain uh, people have, have, have taken up sort of the, the look of this kind of, you know, uh, wearing hats and, uh, you know, having yeah. certain kinds of facial hair and stuff. That, you know, it's, that's not his fault. It's not his fault because, I mean, he was doing that stuff in the 80s. You know, it's it's taken yeah. like 30 years to catch up with that. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's it's not his fault. But, you know, it's when they're, people refer to those earlier films, they do refer to the characters as hipsters. I mean, uh, I can I just read it now on IMDb. Stranger Than Paradise, a self-styled New York hipster is paid a surprise visit by his younger cousin. It's in the description. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Jim Jarmusch didn't write that description, but yes, yeah. uh, it, it's, it's it's how it's how it's how they're seen, unfortunately right. yeah. or fortunately, depending on your point of view. Yes. Right. So let's uh, get on to our picks for Movie Heaven. So, Clive, what is your pick? My pick for Movie Heaven is the wonderful Down by Law. Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Uh, starring the inimitable uh, Roberto Benini as, yeah. hey, Roberto. Um, and then the uh, sort of the the duo of uh, John Lurie and Tom Waits, uh, these two links outsider figures. Um, John Lurie playing the, the pimp Jack, and Tom and Tom Waits playing the almost identically named DJ Zach. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's a it's a it's an interesting tale because on one level you could kind of just read the synopsis and think, okay, well this is this sort of crime film, but. Actually, it's not really at all. No, it's not. No, at all, it's not. It? Um, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. This I, I this is the first Jarmish film I ever saw. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I discovered this through uh, Movie Drome. Oh, okay. For anyone who's not familiar, I, I think you guys might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but Movie Drome was a series was a series that ran uh, on BBC Two in the UK, and what and. The um, filmmaker Alex Cox, uh, who made uh, Repo Man, Walker, a number of other uh, cult films, Sid and Nancy, uh, would would basically uh, act as host and would introduce two cult films each night um, and sort of uh, uh, talk about the filmmakers, the stars, uh, and aspects of the production he thought was interesting. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, and they're often very kind of, weird and idiosyncratic uh, intros he wasn't always it was obvious that sometimes he hadn't picked the film yeah um, but i think in this case we can guess that alex cox definitely picked down by law given that uh, uh, the dop for down by law uh, robin wooler was also uh, also shot repo man so ah, yeah i'm think and jim jarmusch uh, acted in his film straight to hell Oh, okay. So, so yeah, definitely a connection. <laughs> I, you know, there's some. You could, I think there's a connection. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure on the dates of, of of when he picked Down by Law as a movie drone choice. But uh, well, it probably would have been late 80s. Okay. 
But uh, so, you know, I, I saw this film completely cold, knowing nothing about it, knowing nothing about Jim Jarmusch's work and was absolutely charmed by it. I mean, it's it's for uh, we've already mentioned his name once, Robbie Mueller, but this is a beautiful film to look at just the way it's shot it's shot in uh, on black it's shot black and white on film and robbie muller was uh vin vendors's dop of choice worked with him for years did films like alice in the cities the american friend and then he and then he, he moved out to the u.s uh, and shot things like we, we mentioned repo man but he, he shot things like to live and die in la um and he any any sort of starts to collaborate with uh, with Jarmish on down by law and it becomes this uh, this really fruitful collaboration where he also goes on to shoot dead man ghost dog the way of the samurai which you've mentioned once before and mystery train and uh, it's i mean it, it's just this sort of massive jump up in in, in quality from uh, from permanent vacation which uh, you know it's there are there are some there are some similarities in approach, but obviously we've uh, you've had permanent vacation, then stranger than paradise, then down by law, and down by law really sort of signals this kind of if stranger than paradise is his breakthrough film, down by law is when he sort of starts to become into you know the combination of that and stranger than paradise really cement him as as a filmmaker with an international reputation. But you know, I didn't know any of this when I watched it first. I was just sort of touched by this charming, I, I guess you could call it a bromance, almost. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the women, the the uh, Zach and Jack, both have uh, women in their life that they're soon sort of um, gotten rid of. That um, so Zach is dating a character played by Ellen Barkin. Who they she has a big row with him, I think, just because she's not happy with his, you know, lack of interest in DJing. She wants him to do sort of more commercial DJing, which he sort of doesn't want to do. He has a real disdain for. And um, so she sort of she throws all this stuff out, doesn't she? Yeah, she 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 has a violent fit. She fr- you know everything's smashing, including including his 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 shoes, which he yes, and he, he 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 affects this air of well, I don't care, baby, until she's until she tries to throw his shoes out, and then he's like, no, not the shoes, <laughs> which is yeah. highly amusing. Uh, but she's but she still throws them out. I, I've got uh, I've got down by law on Blu-ray, and there's these um, conversations with Jarmusch and. Um, and Tom Waits on the phone, and uh, the the whole shoe thing I think came from Tom Waits because he just loved wearing pointy shoes. <laughs> he just has a thing <laughs> about pointy shoes, so I think that's where it came from. Um, I certainly um, listening to seeing some interviews with Jarmusch is that the the thing is that he likes to collaborate with his actors. A lot of the time, he doesn't even have a script; he will just have an outline. And so he's very welcoming of input from from his actors. So I think that was a, a Tom Waits um, idea. Okay, that's interesting, and it's very obvious watching it that Roberto Benigni had a lot of input into you know his character. So mm. yeah, and I think you can see that. I mean, so you know, as you say, we start off with these 
these basically two couples whose whose uh, relationships sort of breaking down with uh, with the with the, the pimp Jack played by John Lurie. He's uh, you know well, you call it a relationship, but he basically he's the pimp to this uh, prostitute who's really kind of dismissive of him and is not interested at all. And but uh, but so so we we watched the sort of these kind of two parallel storylines. And, and which seem to sort of mirror each other in strange ways. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and then it comes to a point where both both their characters are, uh, are, you know, sort of uh, framed for for crimes they didn't really commit, and right. uh, yeah. and uh, and are arrested and jailed. That's right. Both in kind of like um, either they've been tipped off or they're a sting. Because there's the whole thing with the uh, the pimp gets done for, uh, well, there's a, a young girl in bed and he's been told, you know, she's like f- fresh meat in, in a sense, that she's untouched, that she's somebody who's looking for protection for a pimp. Yeah, she's the, she's new in town and she's 19 years old, old uh, yeah. but not, not really. And the police are waiting for him. Yeah, so, it, so they've both been set up. Yeah. Um, but but but, they, but there's also a sense that they sort of walk into these things because they're sort of uh, just a bit uh, disconnected from from you know the life that they found themselves living so they're just sort of sleepwalking into into the trap in a way the only character who actually did commit his crime was roberto because he was charged with manslaughter because he was in a, a card game wasn't he and the guy accused him of cheating they pulled guns on him and he shot one of them, didn't they? He actually killed one of them. So he actually did commit the crime. Did he shoot one? I, I, I thought that it was... The, yeah, he the... does. He says, I shot back. You shoot at me, I shoot back at you. Okay, but it, yeah. it, it was it was like a really unlucky shot in the, you know... Yeah, in the, yeah. What, what, he did, what he did, you know, just sort of... Yeah, Fluk- I mean, he flukily killed the guy, and he didn't yeah, plan to. Because I mean, because we are introduced to Roberto's character um, early on when um, Tom Waits' character Zach is drunk, and he's just hanging out at the back of a bar, and Roberto comes along, and he's like broken English and asks him something, and you know, Tom Waits doesn't want to know. It's like you know, you know, <laughs> get lost or something, and he just writes it down. Get lost. <laughs> off he goes there's this whole running joke which is one of these things which sounds like it would become very wearing after a while but actually mm. it sort of it builds it really works where where roberto is walking around with with this uh uh with this notepad that he's got where he's just filled it up with these little uh bits of slang and phrases in english he, he doesn't really understand you know he's not fluent at all uh, he, he's just sort of he's trying. It's like he's trying to teach himself the language by just wandering around, randomly interacting with people. And because he's, you know, he's he's got this naturally optimistic, sunny disposition, hoping that everything's going to work out. So, uh, and then he finds himself in jail, having uh, killed a man. So yeah, he, yeah. But he's still got his notepad, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the 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 interesting thing about when they're in jail is. You only see them in the cell. You never see the prison as such. I mean, there's 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 one shot where they dolly along the, the the cell block, looking in at the other prisoners, and then it stops on their cell, and that's it. You after that, they never never leave that cell. You're 
always either looking into the cell or looking out from the cell. Yeah, it, it's it's very claustrophobic, so mm. that so that you can feel this sort of tension build up between them, and it's it's interesting that uh, so you see this this nice dynamic develop between John Lurie and Tom Waits, who are in a way too similar to sort of mm. be in that space together. So whilst they become quite matey, after a while they start to really get on each other's nerves, yeah. and, and then they fight, and then uh, and then Roberto comes into the mix. And he, you know, he's sort of like a peacemaker, uh, but because they can't understand him, he becomes another thing which irritates the both of them. So, yes. <laughs> so you know, and, and and this is and it's all play and this all plays out in this sort of uh, this uh, you know charming, witty, uh, kind of funny way, and and, uh, and until such a point as it turns out that Roberto, uh, who seems to be a bit useless as a character uh, because you know no one can understand what the hell he's going on about yeah as has actually found a way to escape the prison and but which was nice was that um they ha- they have to escape through the uh, exercise yard and so Zach and Jack are, are led out but Roberto is sort of told to stay there and you can see the panic in his face because he knows these two guys are going to go without him <laughs> yeah uh, and, 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 and yeah, it's this scene where he's, he's, be- he's begging the uh, yeah. the sort of the guard to say no it's not fair is is my goal you know uh, and uh, and eventually wears the guard down so he's like yeah what the hell you know so. yeah yeah but, but this is one of those instances which sort of shows how different a filmmaker Jarmusch is to, I guess, a more commercially minded director. Because whereas, you know, a, a lot of a lot of films where there's a prison break, there'd be a whole bit where they planned everything out. They talked about, you know, they went into the sort of procedural part of it, the, the minutiae. Okay, yeah. we, you know, we, we, you know, we need to sort of. This is where the guard changes over. This is the weak point in the wall. This is when we have to do this, you know, and you'd have to establish a load of geography. Mm. Now, Jarmusch isn't interested in any of that. He's so it's like, oh, I know where to escape. And then and then we see them sort of being led out. And then the next shot is this sort of like uh, this this beautifully lit shot of, of, the, of the sewers. Yeah. Uh, and, and and a rope sort of dangles down and then they sort of and, and then you see them coming into shot and running. And it's like, oh, OK, I guess they found a way out then. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's just such a throwaway thing even though it's this really key plot point you know uh, it's you get the feeling where if, if he could have got away with it he would have had it the whole thing happen off screen but yeah uh but because it's done it's done in such a throwaway uh, it, it's nice though because yeah it, it's a, it felt it felt refreshing to me when i watched it the first time and i still like the kind of uh casual almost like freehand way it's just sort of sketched in and yeah. you just get enough information you know and that's that's fine because it's not it's not about the plot it's not it's not a prison break film it's not a kind of we have to break out of the system you know it's not alcatraz it's not uh cold it's here you know but i just want to say it's amazing what you can get away with not showing yes because because as you said you know because as a viewer you can fill in the blank space you don't need to see them being marched out into the exercise yard and then then as you say you know maybe sort of keeping an eye on the guards and just slowly making their way to i guess that sewer you just you see the break and you know then they're on the run 
And it, that is, it's really good because as a filmmaker, you go, oh, well, I need to show this. I need to show that. And it just shows you that you can get away with not showing that. If, if you've got interesting uh, characters and an interesting story, then you can get away with not showing certain things. Yeah, and and when they're by the time they're on the run, you really care about these characters, and mm. you're following them, and, and you're really sort of tied into what's going to happen to them, and you can see that things, you know, that there's this constant sort of needling between Zach and Jack now, and you know, and and to the point where they're sort of I'm going off and leaving you, you no, know, even though it makes sense for them to stick together, and then Roberto's going, my friends, please, I have a rabbit that I've killed, <laughs> you know, which is a fantastic. Oh, come scene. on, we have to talk about the rabbit scene because um, again, um, uh, from reading about this film, uh, the rabbit scene is a story that Roberto Benigni uh, told about his mother. It's supposedly, you know, not. I, I imagine it's embellished a bit, but. It's it is a story about his mother. It's actually something that was made up on the spot. It's, and it's brilliant because he's telling it to nobody. He's sitting there with the rabbit. And he's just there by himself because Jack and Zach have gone off their separate ways, and he doesn't know if they're going to come back. And it's it's just brilliant because, um, you know, my mama, you know, she she pet the rabbit, nice rabbit, nice rabbit, and then she hit the rabbit. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant, but it, it is. And it, but it doesn't feel like it just. It doesn't feel like a bit of comic grandstanding. It no, feels like no. his character is scared and and he's and he's alone, and the only people people he felt he could rely on have just left him, uh, and he's he doesn't know if they're ever, if they're going to come back. So it's like he, he's nervously talking just to kind of keep himself, you know, in that happy place. Yeah. So it really works, and then the fact that the story is this brilliant story as well, yeah. about, about yeah. how, his, how, his, <laughs> how his mother would kill rabbits is is fantastic, you know. Yeah, um, and and the dream he had that he he was the rabbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His mama, my mama, very strange. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, now the thing is, um, having uh, seen. Roberto Benini in other stuff because I I I think the the first thing I actually saw him in was the um the concentration camp film he did Life is Wonderful Life is Beautiful Oh Life is Beautiful sorry and uh, I didn't mind him so much in that I thought he worked really well but then seeing him in uh, Night on Earth I it, the the character he played in that was awful and also remember when he won the Oscar, how he climbed over the backs of seats as everybody to get down. And I thought, Oh, really? So I, I kind of have a bit of a love hate relationship with him. I, I find in some films, he can be really good, like in this one. And then in other films like night on earth, just absolutely grating. That whole segment of his in Italy, it was just, oh, I couldn't stand it. See, I, I really like uh, that segment of Night on Earth. I, I, I find it really funny. I think it's really funny, the whole watermelon just, bit. Yeah. But, uh, you know, life, life is beautiful. I, thought, I found it a little bit harder to take um, mm. for me. Um, but it, it was just one of those things where, he, where his, his comic stylings became a bit overexposed to the point where, uh, where you know, I, I I didn't go and see his version of Pinocchio because it just seemed like a like a really bad idea. And I didn't go and see the Son of the Pink Panther. Either. No, you, you you were you were waiting for the Steve Martin remake, yeah? 
Can't get enough of Steve Martin ruining those old TV shows and films for you. <laughs> Bill Cut. <laughs> who, who, oh. who directed the Pink Panther, uh, the the remake? Can we, uh, yeah, obviously, the uh, candidate for Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. No? Oh, God, I can't remember. Who was it? I don't know. I don't know if maybe that might just be all movie hell though. <laughs> I just, I'm pretty sure that Blake Edwards wasn't involved in that one. No, but, uh, no, no. I think was Blake Edwards dead by then? Possibly. Um, with with the Pink Panther remake, I think mm. he might have had a, a hand in the son of the Pink Panther. I think he had a son. I think he had a son in the hand of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, ticket it. Hey. Yeah. yeah, the other way around. Um, yes. Uh, but yeah, coming back to Down by Law. Um, yeah. Do we? Should we spoil the ending? I mean, uh, how spoilery do we want to be with with this talk about Down by Law? I mean, uh, let's just. I mean, or should we just say that that it that it ends that. It, after seeming to be about all about the pursuit and then as fugitives, it really takes this surprising and de- delightful turn. I would say, um, I, I, it's, you know, because I'll say this, they they find a restaurant and they send Roberto in, don't they? Saying, oh, the cops might be in there. And they're kind of chuckling to themselves thinking, oh, my God, he fell for it. And, of course, they're waiting outside for ages, all cold and everything. They're like, what's going on? And then, of course... Um, Roberto, you know, meets another Italian and uh, things uh, change from there. But um, the Italian is played by uh, Nicoletta Brasci, who, um, you know, I don't think she uses her married name because she's married to Roberto Benini. I believe believe this is the film they met on as well, because she played the wife in um, Life is Beautiful. That's where I'd seen it before. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and she's also in Mystery Train. She's in the section called Ghost. Um, I would need to refresh my memory as to which section that was in particular, but um, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, but uh, yeah. I guess we should maybe just close on down by law by yeah by by just saying that it's 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 almost like the perfect distillation of like early drama sh- of of his style kind of coming to fruition really it's like uh, this is from this point from strange uh, strange than paradise I, I i love as well yeah but down down by law is is you know just one of those films which just it seems like every beat of it is absolutely right yeah and uh and it and it's just it's just such a sort of charmingly sort of sweet story which is you know funny and and, and t- goes in unexpected places so yeah i would absolutely recommend it me too uh, i i saw it at the bfi last year and uh really loved it so uh yeah right on to my pick now and uh for my pick for movie heaven it's uh dead man with johnny depp i i caught up with all the jim mcjarmish films and uh I, I really love this one. I, I really love Dead Man. And um, it's, um, I had heard about it back in the 90s when it came out because it, um, it was picked up by Miramax and released. And I remember hearing about this sort of arty black and white Western. And at the time I thought, nah, not for me. But uh, going back and 
and now watching it, I thought, wow, I really missed that because it's it's such a, a a great film. You know, it's for somebody who says they're not a big fan of westerns, he's made a really good western. The story starts off with uh, Johnny Depp traveling on the train, and the thing that happens is that um, as it goes along, you can see civilization slipping away. So you know. It, the the landscape gets a, le- a lot more sparse. He sees like uh, what's left of like uh, Indian um, teepees. Uh, the the people on the train get rougher, and they're more like uh, fur trappers as they go along. And then you get Crispin Glover sit down in front of him with blackface. <laughs> well, no, it, 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 oh, no, 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 I know it's not actually it's blackface. Not blackface. It, it, it's it, it, so, it's so. It's soot from the fire, but yeah. he is sitting there with blackface on, you know. It's one of these things where it's like, wow, how the hell did he get away with that? But he gets away with it because he's working the engine and, you know, stoking the fire. So he would be covered in soot. Yeah, that's yeah. why he's covered in soot, Simon. It's not like he's blacked <laughs> yeah. up. And it's, not like, it's like, ah, how can I get away with being a massive racist? What I'll do is I'll, I'll work in the engineering department and then people won't notice that I'm wearing blackface the whole time. I don't think that was the idea. I could be wrong. I know, I know. I know, but I jest, but I mean... It's a bit like that. Yeah, of. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it's done because, um, you know... It, sort of around his mouth and around his eyes it's not so black so you know he hasn't like you know where where is my baby where is my darling <laughs> you know, it's none of that anyway well uh crispin glover sits down in front of him and asks him where he's coming from and where is he going and why is he going and then he then says well why would you want to come to hell and it is kind of like that. It's, um, he's heading towards a town called Machine, and it's it, it does feel like it's the end of the world there. I mean, as he's walking along, I mean, he sees a guy in an alleyway getting a blowjob off a woman, and he just, you know, shoves a gun in his, you know, in his direction. And it's just like, you know, it's one of these places, if you don't watch out, you, as a civilised person, you are going to get shot. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's really grimy and gritty and rough and it, it's it, you feel like it's the sort of the like the town from a razor head like back in yeah. the wild west days you know that's right yeah because uh he's there for an accounting job uh with uh for a family called dickinson with uh robert mitchin as the as the boss and it was his sort of final role as well and uh so Johnny Depp's character called William Blake, he, you know, walks into the office and says he's there for a job. Unfortunately, he's gotten there a month too late. And uh, this is a very small part for John Hurt, but he's really good in the the, 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 just the brief time you see him because, you know, he's trying to deal with the guy and he's like, you know, he wants to see the boss and he just make you know, he's laughing because he knows what's going to happen if he walks into that office, which, you know, William Blake goes in there and, you know, you know, wants to know what he's, you know, happened to his job. But of course, Robert Mitchin's character, he's there <laughs> with a shotgun ready to shoot him. Yeah, you get this real clash of cultures because uh, mm. Johnny Depp's character is a real 
city dude, a real, you know, sort of Yankee from, from back, from way back in the East, from, uh, from, uh, you know, he, he sort of says to him, where'd you get that suit? Cleveland. And he's like, well, yes, I did actually. Um, you know, he's, he's wearing this sort of slightly absurd, uh, slightly, uh, prim looking uh sort of checked uh you know sort of sporty outfit isn't yeah. he which yes, which, yes. which which really is which like really marks him out amongst all the kind of uh like grizzled grimy yeah. looking uh sort of wild wild west types well because a lot of them they are actually wearing like bear furs and stuff so they do really look grizzly yes you're literally grizzly <laughs> like the bear yeah yeah um, so feeling down on his luck, not having a job or anything, uh, he visits a local bar where the last of his money only gets him like a very small bottle of whiskey. And, uh, he encounters, uh, this girl, uh, called Fell, who's, um, she was a whore, um, but, uh, she has now sort of turned into making, uh, paper flowers, which she's trying to sell and. You know, in a, in a place like that, they ain't going to go down very well. And, and she she has a dream that one day she'll be able to make the flowers out of silk and you, and use uh, and put a, a drop of French perfume in each one. That's right. So, um, so her and William Blake, uh, you know, we gather sleep together because we see them in bed afterwards. And um, her ex lover walks in the um charlie dickinson played by gabriel Byrne, in a, a very small part and um he's there to sort of rekindle his love and of course he's heartbroken to see her with another man and it there's a conversation that ensues where oh she says she doesn't love him and she shoots him and well he shoots her but the thing is she's in the way of johnny depp who gets hit? Yeah, it's it's like it, he he gets out his pistol to shoot Johnny Depp. She yeah. she dives in the way, but she she also has her gun and shoots him. So well, no, Johnny Depp has. Oh no, her sorry, gun. you're right. Yeah, yeah. She, she, Johnny she, Depp she has, has her gun, gun but yeah. yeah, and he shoots him back because he misses twice, doesn't he? And he's because uh, Gabriel Burns' character is so shocked that he's just shot his his loved one. He doesn't react, and then the third shot hits him in the neck, which I have to say is is the out of all the sort of shootings you see in the whole film is the most graphic one because a lot of the time it's that old you see the smoke and then somebody reacts and well, you don't see blood or anything but with that's that, true that there do. is one very gory moment later on yes but that's not a gunshot wound. no it's not no so william blake has to get out of there after what he's done and he gets out through the window and grabs the nearest horse and rides off and then we get one of the first sort of many fades of blacks. So, well, we, we've uh, we've had a few more before that, I think. But, I know, yeah. but this is really where it's it's a lot more noticeable because the next shot is is of the Indian nobody looking down at him because he's he's just, he's he's found you know he's he's passed out the horses. You know, he's fallen off the horse and this uh, Indian called Nobody has found him and he's trying to dig the bullet out of his chest with a knife. Yeah, because the the bullet went through Fell, killed her yeah. and embedded itself in in his chest. Chest, yeah. Right next to his heart. 
So he is he is a dead man walking, you know, from that point on. As, as I've sort of said that Gabriel Byrne's character is the son of Robert Mitchum's character, John Dickerson, and he decides to hire uh, these three... Um, I was going to say, they're not mercenaries, they're bounty hunters. Lance Henriksen is this, like, old, grizzled legend of a bounty hunter, while Michael Wincott is this, like, mouthy, you know, he's been around for a while, and then you've got Eugene Bird as Johnny the Kid, who's, like, you know, the up-and-coming one. And, of course, they, they're all complaining about the fact that they don't work together, they always work alone. But, uh, you know... Robert Mitchum, in his particular style, convinces them to, you know, work together. Yeah, by pulling by pulling a gun on them. Um, <laughs> yeah, which I think is his solution to everything. Yeah, Robert Mitchum is fantastic in this movie. It must yeah. be said. I mean, obviously, a legend from from many westerns, uh, you know, back in the day. Uh, That's it. And you know, a face from classic Hollywood, but he really sort of he you know it, it really adds something to the piece just by being there and almost the, he doesn't even have to open his mouth just the way he he you see him opposite johnny depp's character and you, yeah. you know the story uh so it's just great uh, i mean he's a, an imposing character you can tell straight away that he takes no shit off anybody he you know it feels like he's built that town up from the the ground upwards and it's his place it's you know so no little upstart from cleveland's going to tell him anything but uh yeah it's a shame there isn't any more scenes with him really i think there's only three scenes isn't there there's a there's a third scene where he tells john hurt to sort of you know get the word out there he he wants uh william blake you know killed and he wants his horses back (laughs) <laughs> he wants his pinto back. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the the rest of the film is is Johnny Depp with uh, Gary Farmer, who plays the Indian nobody, and um, it's this lovely thing because his name's William Blake, and nobody thinks he's William Blake the poet. Uh, <laughs> he he does co- he, you know he does comment. Uh, why don't you know your poetry? You know, why don't you say you're, you know? <laughs> yeah, because no, nobody is a major William Blake, the poet and artist fanboy. So yeah. you know, when he, because at one point in his life, he sort of gets sort of taken away by white settlers and sort of an edge an educator, which is how he can, uh, you know, he's he's able to speak English and and how he knows all about William Blake, but but at some at, but also at some point he then went back to his people and then he's, he's, so he's become this sort of outcast figure. So he's another one of Jarmusch's sort of uh, outsiders really who doesn't fit in into either world. Yeah. And uh, fun fact, uh, Gary Farmer came back for a ghost dog to play the same character in one scene. <laughs> cool. He's uh, I don't know if you remember it, but they're, um, they're looking for ghost dog and the only thing they know is that he's got pigeon loft and so two of the gangsters turn up at this pigeon loft that's run by nobody and actually shoots a pigeon that was quite nasty i thought bloody hell i hope that wasn't a real pigeon (laughs) (laughs) you know 
but um yeah that was quite that was quite fun to see that he you know came back and just for i imagine it was just like an afternoon or something came and filmed that little cameo well, he does. He does like to uh, to bring people back and use them in sort of small roles. Sometimes, I mean, obviously, John Hurt has gone back, has worked with him, you know, a, yes. a, a number of times since Dead Man. That's right. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so you you have the three um, bounty hunters following uh, the trail, but uh, this is a lovely thing. I think I caught this up more the second time. Is that Lance Henriksen actually picks them off one by one? Yes. <laughs> um, the last time you see Michael Wincott's character is he's they're off riding around a corner in the distance, and um, he's just sort of you know did I tell you about where I'm from? You know I bet you're German, maybe Austrian. <laughs> it is phase the black and it phase back up, and you just see Lance Henriksen chewing on his on the bones isn't it he's like he's munching on what's left of his hand i was just like oh i didn't catch that last time <laughs> he's like michael wincott just disappeared what happens <laughs> but i think that is one of the things you have to you have to pay attention to sort of jarmish films because things like that can slip you by very quickly because anybody else you would have seen Michael Wincott get killed and then probably served up for dinner. Well, it, 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 it often, often some story beats, and this is not this is true of not just of Dead Man but of uh, a lot of his films, uh, which you know could be important story beats. He, he'll play as comedy. You know there'll be little yeah. moments of deadpan comedy. So, uh, so you know if it's funnier. To sort of have so have hear a gunshot off screen and then cut to uh, yeah <laughs> cut to Lance Henriksen picking uh, picking bits of the guy out of his teeth as he's gnawing on the hand. <laughs> then it will yeah. do that. Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think um, I I particularly liked sort of some of the the violence in this film. <laughs> I, I especially like the scene where you've got these two marshals who look identical. They're both bald headed. They've both sort of got tan lines from where their hats are. And um, they discover sort of William Blake's camp. And they're arguing over the, is that the, is that the Pinto? Well, you read the telegraph, didn't you? Yeah, no, I'm sure that, I'm sure. I don't think there was a description of it. And of course, William Blake turns up. And I think at this point, he's kind of like half starved because he does say to him, oh, have you heard, have you heard my poetry? <laughs> and of course he shoots one of the guys who um as he dies he pulls the trigger on his rifle and shoots the other guy <laughs> i thought that was really well done yeah and and the way when they fall down uh one of them is sort of falls falls into the yes. extinguished fire and it looks yeah. and it looks like he's he's got a kind of like sun or halo around him and then the That's other right. one is sort of is off to one side so it 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 echoes this poem about uh, about some people living in the light and some living in the in the darkness so well yeah i mean and that also leads to when um lance henriksen and michael wincott who's still alive at this point discover the two bodies uh like lance henriksen does sort of say how it, he looks like a religious painting doesn't he yeah it looks like a religious icon and then he does something about that <laughs> Yeah, that was that was the sort of the the gross bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even made uh, Michael Wincott sort of turn turn his nose away, didn't they? 
yeah, it's it's one of those moments that sort of sticks out because he's not that sort of filmmaker to dwell on that kind of thing. So you're like, yeah. oh, okay, oh, that's that's really horrible. Yeah, but, uh, and, and as I say, because um, you know, because a lot of the, I mean, there's a lot more shootings that go on, but it's that old style of you know, you see the the puff of smoke and then somebody falls over. You don't see gallons of blood, but you see sort of blood blood spurts but you know everyone's because everyone's wearing like big furs and stuff you're not you're not going to get like a, it's, not so much i mean the, the bit when um william blake and nobody get to this uh tent where you got the preacher played by alfred molina yes thank you very much um you know he's there and he's been selling um um, blankets, isn't he? That's got collar and all that kind of nasty stuff. Smallpox, yeah, or, or those sort of uh, as part of the colonialization, uh, you know, destruction of the native peoples. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he believes he's doing God's work, and when nobody walks into the tent, he's like, I don't deal with heathens, and you know, he, he gets all uppity. Uh, but there's um, there's a shootout that happens. He shoots Alfred Molino. And I don't, you know, I think you see like a bullet hole and then he just sort of falls down. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, when he shoots, the guy walks into the tent. You don't really see something. You just see a puff of smoke and the guy falls down. And then he, sh I believe he shoots him again to put him out of his misery. And it's just, you don't see anything. It's just like a puff of smoke. And Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, you got to look at how... Uh, each moment and what and what uh, Jarmusch is playing it as. So there's some moments where, if he's playing his humour, then you don't want lots. He's not looking for lots of gore, or if he's looking for it to just be like, like the, the guys all coming in, all guns blazing, and then just one shot and Blake takes him out. Then that's it works better as a beat if he's just sort of bang fall yeah. down. But you know when he wants us to feel the character's suffering, like uh, there's a moment later where where Johnny get gets shot in the shoulder. And you see the blood come out because obviously, you know, we need to see that he's been properly hurt. So, yeah, you actually see the bullet go through his arm because you actually see it come out because he's shot from behind. Yeah. And for some reason, for the first time I watched it, as I say, I missed the bit with um, with Lance Henriksen chewing on his hand. I might have just sort of turned away. <laughs> For a second, I don't know how I wow, missed it. It's I don't ridiculous. Know that I don't know, but I did. But so I thought the guy who shot him from behind was actually uh, Michael Wincott's character. I didn't realize it was just some sort of, you know, because, uh, you know, later on at the end when Lance Henriksen gets it, it's shot from distance. And so again, you don't really see any blood. You just, you know, yeah. smoke and fall down. But, um, but that gunshot to, in the shoulder i mean that's what really starts sending him on his way because i think the the bullet by his heart you know i think was slowly killing him but this other gunshot was you know was speeding it up because all the blood loss yeah he they take him to uh like an indian reserve by the sea and that's when they he builds that they build him a sort of a boat to take him on his final journey out to the sea and uh, it's uh, very poetic where you see him, you know, floating off, being taken out to sea and, you know, taken to uh, where the spirits come from, as uh, nobody says it. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was 
was really poetic. I, I like the um, the characters in it. I mean, you know, I I, I really enjoyed the scene with uh, Billy Bob Thornton, Iggy Pop, and Jared Harris as these sort of free. I don't know what because Iggy Pop's dressed is in a dress, isn't he, with a bonnet? Uh, yeah, I, I guess you could call him. Uh, I sort of uh i don't know uh, like a transvestite gunslinger uh maybe i mean this this sort of just uh you know uh, like uh, just out camping hunting uh you know well, they're, they're obviously, obviously kind of... murderous aren't they because they yeah. they because Gerald harris and uh billy bob Thornton have an argument about who saw him first and well i don't know that's so that's yeah. more lecherous isn't it than murderous well, because they, they they mentioned that they killed somebody else before. Yeah, like, yeah but I, I, I don't one? think they're talking about murdering him. I think they're talking about who's going to have him. Oh, okay. Did you not get that? <laughs> not, no, I didn't know. Well, there's all this stroking no. of his hair and saying how pretty his hair I is. I know. Okay, I know. But I, I, well, they, could okay. have been scalp- they could have scalped him. I don't know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> such innocence. Uh, I, I felt I felt that that it was it was clear, but perhaps they perhaps okay. uh, you could read it as subtext, I guess. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, they could be. You know, it might not be that they could be eating people. You know, maybe they're getting sick of beans. Uh, <laughs> yes, but I, I, I think the intimation was that they were going to have him and then eat him okay. if they were going to eat him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but perhaps i just uh, have a filthy mind and, and that's the way I, I saw it but it, it it seems it seems quite clear i mean it's it's played in a semi-humorous uh, semi yeah. semi uh yeah. sinister way so yeah well i didn't feel uh that much fret to the truth oh okay <laughs> i mean we've seen films where that kind of thing is far more upfront and threatening and you you know you do worry from the character. yeah i mean this is not last house on the left uh it's no you know it, it's a much di- much different tone so no but yeah I, I think it was there in the scene um I, I have a question for you yes do you think that william blake is a dead man from the point he gets shot by gabriel byrne is the whole rest of the movie like a death dream um I don't think it's a death dream. I think it's um, you know he's he's certainly he's certainly dying, but I didn't I didn't sort of see it as like a death dream. I, I know I know he's I know he's dying, and we see and we see yeah. that he's wounded, and then he he gets more wounded. But because of the way it plays out, because he he, he you could say that he sort of meets this kind of spirit guide character in the form of uh, uh, of Gary Farmer's nobody. And then, yeah. and nobody immediately he calls him a dead man when he first meets him. He's like, "What are you yes. doing, dead man?" And then he's, and at which point he sort of likens him to William Blake because he's dead, and, and you know he has the he has well, the it, it's well, actually, he calls him a stupid white man. Yeah, but no, he does also call him dead man. He does. He said, "William Blake, William Blake, the William Blake." Yeah. Then you are a dead man. Do you see what I mean? And and the, yeah, t- I, and the title yeah. of the film is Dead Man. Is Dead Man. So yeah. I, I mean, it's just I think you can read it that way because the, the you could read because it that of way. the way you know 
it's it's almost like this this wish fulfillment that he's been gunned down. He's had a really bad day, and as he's slipping away, he's, he goes into this fantasy where he becomes suddenly becomes this really tough uh, Western killer, you know, and and and, and, go, and goes off on this on this uh, wonderful adventure in the West, which is yeah. like you know. So I think you could read it that way. It's yeah, it's in there. I, I, you could, yeah, I could. I mean, that's not how I saw it, but um, you certainly could see it that way. I mean, it's it is open to interpretation. So if if it work, it can work that way. I mean, probably next time I watch it, I'll I'll, I'll watch it like that and see how it plays out. But um, uh, for me, I sort of saw it very much as a straight thing that you know that he was literally, you know, slowly dying. Yeah, I mean it, it works. It works that way. Works that way, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, Dead Man is an interesting one because the first I, I saw it when it first came out in the nineties, and I found it a bit of a tough watch the first time. Right. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think you know that, that it was. It's one of those films, one of Jarmusch's films, which is the kind of, uh, you know, perhaps not quite as accessible as some of the other ones because of the way okay. it, because of the way it's told and right i think it's because there are lots of these fades to black throughout and yeah. even in the first in the even the first scene it's basically it's basically like johnny depp sort of nodding off and coming back to consciousness so you keep yes. fading in and out you've also have this really distinctive neil young score which yes. is which is very kind of hypnotic and repetitive in, in a lot of ways and when you add that into it, add the pacing of it, it's sort of it's sort of like a dream. And I I, I just I, I found I found that I found that it's fine, it's weird because it, I've rewatched it subsequently and, and I really love it. But yeah. I found it a difficult watch the first time. I think because I went into it hoping, you know, wanting it to be more of a western than it is. Ah right, yeah. And it's more of a kind of like a mystical kind of dream quest with all these weird little idiosyncratic vignettes, you know, um, which is great. But if you go in wanting it to be more like a, a conventional like, I don't know, Western, yeah, th- th- then it's going to be a bit bit frustrating because you're going to be like, well, when do they get to the bit the bit where where the bounty hunters like uh, catch up with Blake and there's a big shootout, which would be the Western way to do it, wouldn't it? You know, I'm just thinking, you know, it reminds me a lot of is that Eastwood film, you know, the one where he goes into the town. Oh, um, High Plains Drifter. That's it. Yeah. It reminds me quite a bit of that, how it's sort of the unconventional manner of it. Yeah, I, I can I can see that a bit. I mean, obviously, it looks very different, but yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it because it's it's shot in black and white, so it's very, um, you know, you really it, it the the black and white works really well because it does take you it does make you take you back in time a bit and it the takes all the color out of it, so I guess that also helps towards the sort of you know it being like a a death dream. And, yeah, I mean, and it's you know it's a beautifully shot film. It's just yes. it ha- because it has this meditative pace though. It's you know uh, you can't watch it when you're sort of a little bit sleepy because no, no. it will sort of it, it will make you drift <laughs> off and that's not a reflection on the film it's just the pacing of it you know but yeah I mean again uh, cinematography by Robbie Mueller and it's you know it is it's beautifully shot 
It is, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I, f- I don't know. I think is it probably his biggest budgeted film because I mean, the the train and all the costumes in that town <laughs> can't have been cheap. It's difficult to say, really. I mean, he's because he's made films with with like with high uh, with stars subsequently, and with yeah, and but I I, I could imagine that they would, you know, like. Tom Cruise did for Magnolia take uh you know do it for the bare minimum just so that they could work with Jarmish because you know he didn't really start working with big stars until uh Dead Man really later in there and you know it start it was starting to sort of yeah but she was still up and coming at that point I mean yeah. um you know she was she wasn't the big star at that point and you know Jarmusch is certainly uh, a director that a lot of actors held up in high regard and somebody that they would be prepared to work with them for less money than they would normally do it for like a, you know take Tom Hiddleston he's in Only Only Lovers Left Alive yeah now that wasn't a big budgeted film so surely he he took a major cut just to do it but he said that he wanted to work with Jarmish you know he you know Tilda Swinton has worked with him on uh three films up to that point yeah so you know he's he's a, a director that actors want to work with yeah uh, so uh, perhaps you're right because it is that period thing although you know, he's he's not one for sort of building massive sets and then sort of no. having having see loads of stuff. But you know, we, we still we do get that entrance to the, to the town of Machine, and we get yeah. and we do see all the uh, uh, we see some of the machinery in the in the work. So perhaps it perhaps it was, yeah, because it was all it, it it all looks of the time period. Yeah, say so it's if you've not seen it. Uh, it's it's well worth checking out. Um, it's not your usual western, so if you go in thinking that, you'll I think you will enjoy it more than if you were thinking it's going to be like the you know the shoot the shootout at the OK Corral. Yeah, and we should uh, emphasize, I think, that this is this is the uh, this is not the Johnny Depp of the pirates movies of the later uh, Tim Burton movies where he's putting where he's putting on a strange voice, a, a moustache, a funny hat. You know, yeah. it's not like a big Johnny Depp performance. This is from his from that kind of interesting period where he was sort of, you know, he was a name, but he wasn't, but uh, but he was still a little bit indie. He was doing interesting movies like Arizona Dream, um, uh, you know, working on those earlier sort of better Tim Burton movies, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, with his hands, Ed Woods, things like that. And, you know, he's just on that sort of cusp of sort of becoming that sort of mega star. But, yeah. um, you know, he's still, yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting performance in this one. You know, I think this is one of his better performances. I thought he was really good and, you know, and he has to carry the film. And the thing I heard was as well was that the film was shot out of sequence. So to have that, you know, um, transformation from you know being a sort of civilized person to being you know somebody who kills and then to sort of dying you know and shot out of order is, is amazing because you, you you throughout the film you don't you can see a graduation but you it's not like oh wait a minute what's he doing there 
you can you know he knows exactly where he what point he is in the film and where he should be emotionally and i mean that is amazing really yeah and uh, and and he's sort of the interplay that he has with uh, uh with, with nobody with that character the, the two of them together i think is is you know re- really makes the film so so that was our picks for movie heaven now we've got to go to movie hell so clive what is your pick for movie hell well i i'm going to preface this i, I feel like i'm almost in the keith role here you know hey there are no bad <laughs> films man um <laughs> uh you know i love jim jarmusch's work so for me i'm just, i'm picking a film which i think is uh, is one of his lesser works it's one of my less favorite of his films and if you're going to watch his films, then it's one, you know, that, the, you know, if it's really only for people who are absolutely obsessive and want to see where everything came from. So I'm picking his first movie, Permanent Vacation. Yes, which I think we have to preface to say that it was a student feature. It was a film that he made when he was still a student. And that kind of shows it does. I mean, it's it, in one way, it's absolutely fascinating it, it, to see to see the sort of beginnings of of his style of him finding his feet and trying things out. It, it's 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 probably the film is with the least amount of plot, which is saying a lot because he's not really a filmmaker who's concerned with that. This film, there isn't like an overall story. I mean, I think the the actual the title is very apt because that's what it feels like it feels like you know the character is on permanent vacation and that's including from a story well i mean we should say you have uh our lead our lead viewpoint character is uh is ali played by chris parker um who's who's i guess you could call him a, a disaffected hipster what does he actually do anything it's difficult to tell well, no, he's, well, I've, the opening sequence, you sort of see shots of the city and you see it's run down and then you sort of see him walking along and then he does some graffiti and then you see him go to his apartment. And that's your intro to him. He he, he just, he's lounging about and he's strolling and he's in no rush to go anywhere. And he, you know, it does, he does feel like he's on vacation from everything. You know, reality, life. Yeah. You know. So I mean, you know, he's he's a young man who's just sort of pretty alienated with the world. He's he has a relationship, but it's it's so kind of broken down that there's very little communication with uh, with his significant other, and he just he basically decides he's going to go he's going to go walk about. Um, uh, but which in this case means uh, a sort of a tour of the kind of lesser known parts of the uh, uh, of, uh, yeah of new, new york city but it's it's kind of in new york yeah. I mean, the interesting part is this is in new york you don't see really yeah uh, perhaps it's and and it's new york which probably doesn't exist anymore so it's the kind of it's the sort of the broken uh rundown parts of it you know if if you know if kind of motorcycle gangs from sort of uh you know, uh, Italian Mad Max knockoffs sort of rode through, <laughs> you know, uh, and then you wouldn't be surprised because it, it has that yeah. feel of it. Everything's covered, it, everything's sort of cracked and sort of decaying. 
uh, and there is graffiti everywhere. Um, so then it becomes this kind of episodic thing, almost like a like a proto prototype for sort of something like Slacker, where, you, where we're going yeah. through and meeting these sort of little vignettes. We're getting these different characters, um, most of whom are these sort of who are sort of fellow outsiders. Uh, he goes and sees his mum in hospital, who's not very well. Yeah, this character he goes through and he meets these people. He doesn't really communicate with anyone with any of them. Yeah. And you and often you get a series of kind of monologues from them. I mean, where that works, I, I think I will say I think if it's one reason to see this movie, it's it's for the Doppler effect story. Yes, from a very young Frankie uh, Faison. Yeah, who obviously goes on to be in uh, The Wire and things like that. He was um, Barney from Science Labs. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, very. Uh, very recognisable uh, yeah. character actor, brilliant stuff. And but one of the reasons that the Doppler effect story stands out is because Frankie Faison is one of the best actors in this film. Mm. And this is where we come to the point where we have to say, why is this in my? Why is this my movie hell? You know, it's not. You know, I don't hate this movie. I don't think it's. You know, I I, I think it's, it, it it achieves. Some achieves some of what it's trying to do, but the major problem here is that you have a, a number of the lead actors are, just aren't very good actors, or, or or you know you're just not getting much out of them. I mean, it, when you move on to Stranger Than Paradise, all of the sort of central uh, characters are played by really charismatic, interesting actors and performers, and it really makes a big difference. So, yeah. so, so, yeah. so you can see, you know, he's trying a lot of some of the techniques which will go on to sort of flower and blossom in his later work. But here, you know, it's just it's not sort of fully developing because because Chris Parker in particular is comes across as this very kind of gauche and charmless and slightly wooden lead presence. Who, yeah. uh, I mean, the moments where he, where he does sort of seem to come out, come alive is when he's sort of geekily dancing, which is this sort of well, another one of those sort of scenes which you see crop up in a number of Jarmish films where characters will sort of spontaneously break into dance, and it's this funny sort of uh, yeah joyous moment, and and that's the the only time in the film I really warmed to him was uh, seeing him dance uh, in this sort of weird way. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the rest of it is just—it's—it's a bit of a slog. It's it's interesting, primarily because this is like the the film where he he meets a lot of his longtime collaborators. You know, he meets John Lurie through this film because he's uh, because he he scores the film with John Lurie, but and John Lurie has a cameo as a saxophone player in the film, And, and he and and he only has one line of dialogue, and you sort of just wish. That 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 John Lurie would just sort of club the guy, would club the guy over the head with his saxophone and take over as our viewpoint character. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's just sort of having watched Strange the Paradise and Down by Law yeah. and so on, and yeah. just you know loving loving his work. But yeah, it's just, it's it's such a shame. I think again, it's he was working with what he had, and um, I don't know what his relationship with the actor is, um, but. Uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, he's stuck with this actor and uh, it, it doesn't help. 
And uh, yeah, it, it's as you say, it, it's his him going through these vignettes, meeting people, and uh, a lot of them don't work. I mean, the guy in the 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 war vet in the graveyard talking about the planes. So this whole thing about planes in this film, because he's talking about the bombings and uh, the main character, and then he meets this war vet who he, he says, "Oh, the you know the planes are coming and." He corrects him and says, well, actually, they're helicopters. And then it, when he's talking to his mum and she goes on about planes. So it's, I don't know, it's just this weird thing in there, which, you know, there's no real payoff to. Yeah, I think it's it's just one of these sort of avant-garde influences that, uh, you know, that he, where he's just trying, he's trying things out. And and, and it's this idea that, that he, he, he feels embattled like literally in battle like like there like there's a war going on and only he can you know only he's aware of it so it's part of this sort of state of mind that you see him walking and he, he hears all this sounds of battle and then and then he meets this war vet who sort of seems to sort of almost spring up out of his subconscious and i think that's what he was going for this sort of like this poetic thing i mean i mean this film also uses voiceover and which i don't think is entirely successful. No, I, I didn't didn't like the voiceover because it, because it, again, the vocal the vocal performance from Chris Parker, who I feel bad to to rag on, but um, it doesn't really help sell uh, the ideas here, you know, and, and 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 again we have the voiceover at the end where where he talks about the idea of a permanent vacation and where we get the title from, you know. I'm I, just looking at. Uh... Chris Parker's um, credits on IMDb, and uh, he didn't really go on to do much. Um, though I I do like the fact he was in a film called "I Was a She Male for the FBI." Really? Okay, I, I'm not <laughs> yeah. familiar with that one. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that, but <laughs> that title sort of did spring out to me. Uh, though he's um, got second billing to Chaz Holderman. Don't know who that is. But uh, <laughs> I know we're not recommending it. I'm just saying it's a fun title. Huh. Okay, cool. <laughs> but I think there's, I will say, there's. I think there's one thing, one good thing that came out of this film, and it's the fact that the cinematography is by Tom DeCalio. Uh, well, it's it's by two people, isn't it? It's, it's Tom, Tom, yeah, t- Tom DeCillo. Um, oh, sorry, Tom DeCillo. Uh, who, yeah, who goes on to become a, a fantastic indie filmmaker in his own right. But um, why I say that is because uh, I believe that uh, his film Living in Oblivion, which is about making low-budget films, part of it was this experience of making this film. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of it is very strongly modelled on his on his debut film, Johnny Swade, um, in particular the, uh, the Brad Pitt character from Johnny Swade. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure that, that permanent vacation would have would have played into that as yeah. well. So that's that's yeah. interesting. I mean in- also interestingly the other sort of person credited in the cinematography is uh, uh James A Libowitz who uh, goes on to be the uh, uh, director of photography on the first three Toxic Avenger movies. <laughs> so so oh, okay. so a very different kind of independent filmmaking there. Yeah. Oh, so he, well, he's camera operated a lot of films as well, including Maniac Cop 2 and the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, there you go. There you go, yeah. I mean, I think before we move on from Permanent Vacation, and I 
yes. advise people to do that as well. Um, I, I, I think there's there's one of these well, there's one of these famous stories that uh, Jim Jarmusch always sort of talks about, and it almost it feels like it's relevant to uh, to permanent vacation in particular because. Uh, he, he talks about how uh, he, how uh, Nicholas Ray was his mentor uh, right. because uh, when, he, when he was at film school in New York, uh, he uh, uh, one of the people that that came in sort of as a guest tutor was Nicholas Ray, who was you know very old and quite sickly at the time. Um, uh, but out of all his students, he picks uh, Jarmish to be his assistant on the film lightning over uh, lightning over water which is the uh, collaboration with vim vendors um but uh but uh, jamish would tell this story about how he brought his first ever script to ray to look at uh, and see what he thought you know to his mentor and ray read it and he criticized it for its lack of action so uh, so jamish went away thought about this and he responded by we by re reworking the script so that even less happened and then handed it back to him and <laughs> and apparently it, it, it was you know when uh, when Ray saw this that was, he, he liked the sort of like the the, the guy uh, was so like independent and uh, just uh, and true to his vision so even though he completely disagreed with him, that was that was the, apparently the thing that sort of that sort of sparked his interest in in this you know young kid. So, but I, I do wonder, like uh, having watched *Permanent Vacation*, whether that was the script, you know, because you know almost so, yeah. you know like, as we say, not that much happens in it. So. Yeah, well, it's either that or it's uh, Stranger Than Paradise because you could say the same about Stranger Than Paradise. Well, I, th I think you know. more happens to Stranger Than Paradise, and it. And... Yeah, I know, but I'm. I, but the it's very sort of low key. It's um, you know, a, apart from a bit at the end where um, the the girl um gets some money by mistake, it's all just sort of you know. It starts off with him in his apartment, and she's sitting there, and she's quite bored. And then she goes back to. I, well, I, I don't know. I think I think you know that's the sort of minutiae of the scenes, but the actual kind of big, you know, it's like uh, his cousin suddenly arrives and sort of impacts on his life. So that's a big story yeah. point. And and then you know, so so you know, there's movement, yeah. there's movement in it, and uh, I, I think Stranger Than Paradise is a fantastic movie. It might have been the script. You know, I, 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 you yeah, I, I, you can see how one leads into the other. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's just leave it at that, perhaps. <laughs> yes, we don't know. We're only speculating. But uh, yes, let's let's move on to uh, my movie hell, and uh, I have picked the limits of control. Now, uh, this is a film I had to find. You know, search out. Um, I remember it, it came out. Um, Oh, it's not that long ago, really. Um, let's try and find when it came out. <laughs> I should do this before I do these. <laughs> okay, it, it came out in 2009. Um, and I, I do remember at the time when it came out, uh, not sort of being that interested in it. And uh, I would say, it, it, I, I think my sort of initial instinct was correct because... Um, it's a film where not much happens. Yes. You know, it's, it is really not much happens at all. 
So, um, well, the story is, is that um, this silent hitman is given a job to do and he travels to Spain and he meets, he has these contacts that he keep meeting and they keep passing him um, like boxes of matchsticks, which have either instructions or items that he's going to use. And ultimately this leads him, you know, to his hit, which he, you know, he does. And then the film finishes, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it's a uh, 90 minutes of that, you know, of not much happening. It's a, it's a very, it, how can I put it? I mean, it, it's one of these films that just really takes its time and not much happens. And because the character doesn't say much, it's the other characters who do all the talking. It's kind of, you know, it's, not that interesting you know i it's kind of like an exercise in something but the thing is um when when you have a character who doesn't speak then their actions take on you know that they, they become louder than words so for a character who's you know very impassive and doesn't do much it does make you feel impassive and kind of bored i think yeah i mean the, the limits to control is it's a pretty tough watch i mean and it's just uh, for, for mainly the the what you've talked about there i think the thing is it's it, it's interesting to kind of look at in terms of it's almost taking it doing a similar thing that dead man did uh in terms of it's taking a particular genre like the hitman spy genre because there's a lot of sort of spy type stuff in this in terms of meeting up with people and having code words and yeah. uh and there's this whole business of of exchanging of matchboxes uh which have got in there's a line of dialogue that every character says when they meet him and that's oh you don't speak spanish it becomes a kind of a running joke uh, and, and yeah. i guess you could sort of almost reference say that you know perhaps it's some, some sort of reference to uh down by law in a way you know the sort of the character it it, it uh, sort of a what uh sort of isolated in this uh in, in this strange place where he doesn't speak the language but um i don't know but the the protagonist is so enigmatic that you don't know whether he can't actually speak spanish whether he's just lying about it it it's it's almost sort of takes a similar approach that the dead man dead man did to to the western and he does it to the sort of crime film where we have this we have this uh this character who sort of goes through and meets these these different people in, in vignettes but you don't have that warm relationship at the center there's he's very much on his own um and although there are a couple of characters that reoccur like tilda swinton's but generally it's it's like uh you know he, he arranges a meeting he has a meeting uh, they monologue at him. He says a couple of words, and then, and then we move on to the next thing. That's it. And he has his two expressos. He always has two expressos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is, which again is kind of like I think his only kind of vice that he actually has, because everything else, you know, he's offered sex and he he doesn't take it. I mean, there's a character in it called the nude woman and she is nude a lot. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah, uninterested, really. Well, he, he says that he doesn't do that while, uh, you know, while he's working. 
you know. Mm. But he also never sleeps. We just see him lying down with his eyes open, and then we see the sort yeah. of sun come up, and then it's it's like he just rests. So he's almost characterised as being as being sort of superhuman. Um, and you know he's a very striking guy, Isaac de Bancola, and sort of he yeah. really kind of holds the camera. But it makes it quite a chilly film, I think, because there's no real kind of uh, feeling that you can kind of emotionally engage with his character because he's such a mystery. Um, so, so you're left with these sort of different, uh, you know, interactions with with uh, you know, uh, colourful characters. But I mean, yeah. the, uh, you know, from a positive point of view, I think the cinematography of this film is absolutely beautiful. Uh, and it and it's and and it's really absolutely obsessed with color. This film, this whole uh, motif of the color red sort of winding its way through. If it reminds me of any, anything, I mean, I've, I've read pieces where they've sort of said that it's very influenced by Antonioni, um, and I can see that to a degree. But I think, but 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 the thing it really reminds me of is um, uh, of, of Cinema de Luc, that whole. Uh, that whole movement of uh, Jean-Jacques Beignoux and uh, Luc Besson and that those sort of really hyper-stylized French films that came out in the 80s and sort of early 90s where you'd have a whole, uh, you know, whole uh, scenes which are sort of arc, art directed to within an inch of their life where where everything is just the same blue as the cigarette packet that the guy's holding and it's it, it it feels it's interesting because it feels a very controlled film, mm. and especially and in the way it's shot, it's so kind of beautifully done. Do you know who shot it? <laughs> it's Christopher Doyle. Ah, uh, okay. Who shot um, Hero, uh, House of Flying Daggers, and of course, uh, In the Mood for Love. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, it, it's visually i think it's fantastic and it's and it's interesting that the only sort of time where, where the camera work uh, becomes jittery and out of control is in the scene with bill murray yes and but but it, because it's so it's such a sort of mysterious film you start trying to read things into it like what does this symbolize you know he uh, seems he, a lot of the time he's in the same he's in the same suit but then he at one point he changes into a brown suit oh what does the brown suit mean there's a weird thing with Tilda Swinton's character because she's seen on a poster and then you see her being wrestled into a car afterwards. Yeah, and this is after he's already interacted with her. Uh, and and she's, she's dressed all in white. So it's mm. almost like you have certain characters uh, uh, sort of associated with certain colours and whether that means anything at all. It, also, certain characters have certain coloured matchboxes. So it, it, yeah. you feel like, like there's a lot of people talking in codes and giving coded notes to uh, to our, our hitman character. So it, it's almost like like the film is a puzzle that we're supposed to sort of uh, solve, yeah. and, and 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 that's kind of what kept me going watching it really. But it's it doesn't it's not it's not one which which feels like it it solves itself in any satisfactory way. Sadly. You're saying that, I think of a film like Mulholland Drive, where the the puzzle is kind of rewarding, even though your theory and somebody else's theory about what happened can be completely different. 
but that is a much more engaging film. Well, in that, you know, you actually care about the characters even when they turn into different people, uh, which is, uh, which, yeah. And whilst things might be strange, disturbing, and may and may not make conventional sense, they make sort of emotional sense. Mm. And and you do go on a journey, and maybe I've watched that film and love it to death, and I still probably don't understand everything about it. But yeah, but but each time I'm like, this is going to be the time where I really. You know, it, it unveils every, it, all its mysteries to it to me. But even if I can't, but I don't come to the end feeling frustrated. I come to the end feeling no. like I've like I've been on this wonderful journey. You know, and this is the thing about this film is that it, it you you come out of it and you're just like, you know, you you just don't really care. You know, he completes his mission and then he sort of I guess goes back to his normal life. But you know, you just he's so icy and cool and doesn't say much you don't really care in the end of it you just go god i think that's a couple of hours i wish i could get back well i mean i i I would never characterize any jamish film as a complete waste of time and i think that there are some there there are some nice little vignettes with, with the people he meets i like uh i like the john hurt moment i think the first tilda swinton scene is good um so you know that there there are these kind of interesting interactions um and and the, the nude girl stuff some of that is amusing it does get a bit it just wear thin um yeah 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 you you couldn't really believe in a character who just sort of lounges around in nude just trying to tempt him all the time no but then his character is quite he's incredibly kind of stylized anyway i mean mm. you know i'm not quite sure whether he was trying to go for a kind of Alain Delon from Le Samurai sort of vibe with the character. Um, but, you know, it's not like he even has like a sort of budgerigar to humanise him, you know. No, he doesn't. He's not like a Leon character who has his plant. <laughs> no. No, he's not. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's nothing. That That's the thing. It's there. There's nothing to sort of make you warm up to the character no i mean he, he, he what he what he has is a is very strict routines <laughs> you know yes. i must have my two espressos <laughs> i must do my tai chi in the morning i mean you yes. know there's sort of it feels like there's lots of callbacks to other jamish films you can spot little little bits and you're like okay that reminds me a bit of ghost dog you know or that reminds me a bit of this film and like i say it's absolutely beautiful to look at um but it's is it's a challenging watch. I mean, it may, it's yeah. maybe a film that I come back to in in later years, and I and and I will warm to it in the same way that I warm to uh, Dead Man, have, you know, having not necessarily enjoyed it that much the first time I saw it. So, possibly. I mean, I I, I imagine I will come back to it eventually, but it's a, such a shame because. It's coming. This film came after Broken Flowers, which was a very enjoyable film to watch, and that that had a a mystery to it as well. Which uh, you know you could come to your own conclusions. You know if his son did turn up or not, and who the who the mother of his child was. But uh, and also uh, Lovers Left Alive, which is you know I thought a really good vampire film. Yeah, I, I, it's, I don't know. It's almost like it, this, like limits to control is a reaction because, in some ways, Broken Flowers felt like his least Jarmishy film. 
um, you know, because it, it didn't, it, it, it was filled with like, with like recognizable Hollywood faces, uh, Bill Murray in the lead. It felt very much of a piece of, of, of the sort of, uh, Bill Murray films we've been seeing from that time, the more serious roles where he's playing, uh, you know, an aging sort of cynical character who's sort of looking back on his past. And, you know, I mean, I, I enjoyed Broken Flowers, but I, I, you know, it's one of my least favourite um, Jarmusch films, just because it doesn't feel that Jarmushy to me. If okay. that makes sense. Yeah, I know it's 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 funny because um, you know uh, I've I've heard the same accusation being thrown at Ghost Dog. I was like, no, no, I think Ghost Dog is very Jarmusch, and I think Broken Flowers is Jarmusch as well. It's just his take on that particular genre. I think if you if you look at it from that point of view, yeah, I don't know. I yeah. mean, perhaps with limits to control, there's also an element of uh, Jarmusch has always been one of these uh, filmmakers, uh, like Woody Allen to to a certain extent, who have been always more successful in Europe than they have been back mm. in their homeland. And uh, I think he's famously said that Down by Law was the, the last of his films, which was actually made with American money. Oh, okay. uh, so a lot of his financing has come from Europe, and I and you know, and he's obviously been heavily influenced by uh, you know by by the big art house directors from Europe, um, as well as I mean, there's references to Tarkovsky and Limits of Control, uh, you know, Antonioni, obviously a big influence, but it is it, film Limits of Control feels like his most European film, and not just because it's set in Spain. It just it it has a it it has a real feel of him sort of almost trying on that style of filmmaking, um, and I I don't think it suits him. No, it didn't suit him. No, no. I mean, it it played as a, an experiment that I I don't think personally worked because because then when he did uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, he he went back to a more kind of talky story you know, with people interacting with each other through dialogue. And uh, it, it takes place in Detroit and Morocco. And it's, I, I think, um, very, very very much well worth checking out. I think uh, it's, a, it's a really good film. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. I, I'd, I'd hoped I'd be able to catch up with it before, the, before we recorded this, but uh, no, it's still one to look forward to for me. Right. Well, I think that brings us to the end. Uh, if I may, Simon, I'd like to finish with, with one final thought from Mr. Jarmusch himself. Okay. Um, so this is from The Golden Rules of Filmmaking, which is a little something that he did for Movie Maker magazine back in the day. And so this is a quote from Mr. Jarmusch. Nothing is original. Still from anywhere that resonates with inspiration or fuels your imagination. Devour old films, new films, music, books, paintings, photographs, poems, dreams, random conversations, architecture, bridges, street signs, trees, clouds, bodies of water, light and shadows. Select only things to steal that from that speak directly to your soul. If you do this, your work and theft will be authentic. Authenticity is invaluable. Originality is non-existent. And don't bother concealing your feathery. Celebrate it if you feel like it. In any case, always remember what John Luke Goddard said. It's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. 
I believe, words that Tarantino lives by. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps, perhaps so, perhaps so. Ah. <laughs> uh, Right. Well, that brings us to the end of another uh, podcast. Um, so, Clive, how can people find you? Well, uh, if you're still curious to listen to me uh, talk some more, uh, you can hear me do that on the A to Z of SFF podcast, which is a podcast I do with uh, Rob Wickings, where we talk about uh, science fiction and fantasy cinema, television and uh, books uh, and you can find us at the a to z of sff.com and if you're uh, curious to look at some of my work as a filmmaker uh, if you search under my name clive ashenden on vimeo you'll find my page and uh, you can always find my work as always at the independentrunnings.com uh, website uh, also please follow us on facebook at uh, movie heaven movie hell uh, we have a twitter page at uh, at movie heaven hell and uh, we're now on mixtape as well. So you have another way of listening to us. And aren't you also so, on YouTube, Simon? I am on, we are on YouTube as well. Fantastic. <laughs> Just search Independent Runnings or Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, and I'm sure you'll be able to uh, listen to this podcast again. Well, thank you very much for having me on as a guest. I really uh, enjoyed talking about uh, the wonderful Jim Jarmusch and his films. And it's a pleasure to have you. And, uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on again. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you for listening. Thank you.